Well, good morning, everybody. I want <clears throat> to invite you to go ahead and turn over to the letter of 1 John near the very end of the Bible. Go to the very end and start flipping back to your left, I guess. You'll find it pretty soon. We'd also love for you to take, uh, take a copy of the Bible. If you don't own one, we've provided some at the center of each aisle. You can grab one from under the chair at the center and take that with you if you don't own a copy of the Bible. While you're flipping over to 1 John, uh, I want to I do a little commercial for a couple of resources that I think could be very helpful for you as we enter into this new series. So last week we started uh, what will be about a five-month journey through this, the, the letters of John. Uh, for our church on Sunday mornings. Um, one of the things I didn't take time to do last week whenever I was introducing some of the big themes and big questions that this letter is going to get at is tell you some resources that we're going to provide for you to be able to sort of track with the series if you want to go deeper. One of them uh, is, uh, I guess you'd call this, uh, it's sort of like a collection of sermons, but it's a, a popular high-level commentary on what you'll find in the letters of John by a pastor, uh, uh, the late John Stott, who pastored in London for a long, long time, decades of of ministry in that city, uh, passed away not not many years ago. One of my favorite writers, one of the most helpful commentators on the Bible that I ever looked to, I'm going to be using this book a lot in preparing for this series, and we want to try to keep some of these on the resource table over here throughout the series. Starting today, there's three or four of them. Uh, that'll be over there. And if, you, if you're looking for something to help you go a little bit deeper and getting ready for what you'll hear on Sunday mornings, this is a great tool. We'd love for you to grab one of those. Uh, I also wanted, to, uh, while I'm on the subject of John Stott and it being the beginning of the year, I wanted to recommend another, a book I've recommended before. If you're looking for something to help, uh, help guide your time of, of devotion and prayer in God's Word as the year begins, a lot of people are looking for Bible reading plans. John Stott has one, a little companion commentary for daily Bible readings that I've used before. I like it a lot. I think you might enjoy it. It's not a through the whole Bible plan. It's a through the church calendar plan. He's an Anglican. They follow the church calendar as part of their weekly worship structure that has the story of the Bible broken down. Rather than going all the way through the whole Bible, they break down its story in its major pieces and, uh, and tie it back to certain uh, events throughout their year. And John Stott, being a good Anglican pastor, has written a guide to go with that reading plan. So if you're looking for something, maybe, maybe that's not a way you've ever read the Bible. You want to give it a try this year, or if you're just looking for something that gives you something to read, makes it really easy for you, you just open up this book and there's the next text, and then here's a, a page worth of commentary on what's in that text. This is a great guide that I highly recommend. It'll be on the resource table over there too. So, First John, hopefully you've found First John chapter 1 now. Uh, one of the things I mentioned last week that I'll just say again because it's so important to know as we start to get into this letter is that its purpose The purpose for which John wrote this letter is really clear and crucial for every one of us. The purpose for which John wrote this letter was to help his friends understand what true Christianity looks like. This is probably a group of friends that he established as he was traveling around that ancient Roman world, establishing new churches. He most likely established this church, had many dear friends there, but had moved on to establish other churches in other parts of the Roman world. And in the meantime, other teachers had come in behind him and had started to tell a different story, had started to talk about a different Jesus and different ways of following that Jesus than the one that John had taught his friends when he was there. So John follows up here in this letter to remind them of what he taught them in the beginning and to warn them not to believe the lies that these teachers had been spreading throughout their church because he believes that the difference between true Christianity and a counterfeit version of Christianity is the difference between life and death. 
Everything hangs on getting Jesus right. And John wrote this letter to help these friends and in God's providence to help me and you understand what Jesus really did say, what he really did do, and what it really does look like to follow him. In this passage we're going to consider this morning, John gets right to the point. He summarizes the main message that he heard Jesus give from Jesus' own mouth and what it means to embrace that message with your life. He gets straight to the point here. And one of the things that he points us to, some of the false teachings that he's most interested in encountering with this letter and something that he's going to come back to a couple other times during the letter is that genuine Christians, one of the main ways to tell if someone is a genuine Christian, if you're a genuine Christian, has to do with how that person views sin. One of the clearest marks of true Christianity is how you view sin. Now, I know that that sin is not always easy to talk about and that it's not always something that comes with much respect. I, I, uh, the, the notion of there being such a thing as sin is one that can seem like foolishness depending on who you run with and, and who you're listening to. And I think that most people probably have a category for other people being sinners. <laughs> you know, maybe they wouldn't use the word sin, but uh, we don't have a problem admitting that, that people do things they shouldn't. Sometimes we just have a problem recognizing sin's a problem for us. It's, it's hard for us to see it. We think of sin as a problem for Democrats or Republicans or for racists or for genocidal maniacs. And, or maybe we think about sin as more like a, a disease. We wouldn't use the word sin. We'd think more along the lines of brokenness or disease, things that hold us back, keep us in check from being our best selves. But, but sin in the Bible, and this, is, this is so important to know if you want to take Jesus seriously. Sin in the Bible is, is certainly not less than what a disease looks like in our lives. It, it corrodes us. It eats away at us. It kills us. But it's always more. It always involves agency, a decision to do things because they bring us pleasure or because they seem best to us or because they move our interests forward, even when they hurt others. And what the Bible says about sin is that it's not just something we do every now and then. It's a basic part of who we are, that what we do comes out of a deep place in us. And how we view sin, not just sin in somebody else's life, but sin in our own lives, how we view sin has a huge effect on our relationship with God. One of the main reasons John wrote this letter was that he wants his friends to have a friendship with God. He believes it's possible. He believes that's why Jesus came, was to make fellowship, that's a word he uses a lot, fellowship with God possible. But whether or not we have fellowship with God, whether or not we are among God's friends has everything to do with what we believe about sin. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. The first few verses, John goes straight to this huge subject. I want us to break it down and take a a few minutes to consider why sin is serious, why confession is essential, and what God has has done to make confession possible for us. Those three steps this morning. I want to begin by reading John, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, to please stand with me in honor of God's word while we read. This is the word of the Lord to you this morning. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light 
and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is God's word. You can be seated. Why sin is serious. That's where I want to start. Make sure that's clear before we get into how John says true Christians will relate to sin, think about sin, respond to sin. I want to make sure you understand why sin is so serious from John's perspective and really from the perspective of the whole Bible. So the, the section we're going to talk about this morning is mostly about what sin means for friendship with God. It's mostly about how we as individuals who recognize sin as a problem in ourselves should respond to it. It's mostly about that. But John actually doesn't start there. He doesn't start with us. He starts with truth about God. Did you notice that? He starts with the message that he tells us, summarizes what he heard from him, meaning Jesus, meaning the word of life that he saw with his own eyes and heard with his own ears and touched with his own hands. This Jesus that he lived with told him this message about God. It's what he heard from Jesus and it's the foundation for everything else he's gonna say in this letter and here it is. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, I wanna take just a minute and make as sure as I can that you can see why this message is such good news. I don't know that it immediately sounds like good news. It may not make immediate sense at all, or it may actually seem threatening to you to hear that God is light and there's no darkness in him. I want to take a minute to just talk you through what John meant when he said this so that you can see why John says everything that he's going to say next. When John uses this image of light, he's pulling on an image that's really common throughout the Bible, one of the Bible's favorite images for God. It's, a, it's used a lot in the Old Testament. It's used a lot in the New Testament. John himself uses it a lot in what we think was written by him, a gospel, a story about Jesus and who Jesus was and what Jesus said and did. The gospel of John uses the, the theme of light a lot. And the light theme gets used in different ways at different times by different people. You've got to pay real close attention to what this particular guy is saying in this particular place to make sure you get it. It doesn't always mean exactly the same thing. But there are a couple meanings to this light image that come through a lot and they're, they're both embedded here in what John wants to say. So I'm gonna make sure you can see them. They're, they're a little bit different, but they're also really closely connected to one another. And those two images are these. Light, when the Bible uses it, often refers to knowledge or truth and it often refers to purity. Knowledge and purity. I think both of those come out here and I wanna show you why. Think about, first, light as as a a reference to truth or knowledge or insight or revelation. Think about how we still use that image now. We talk about shining a light on something, right? What do we, 
Let me shine some light on that for you, on this topic for you. We think about it, what we mean with those words is that we want to help you see something you didn't see before. We want to bring some new insight, a new understanding to this subject for you. And that's the way that the Bible often uses it. Uh, it takes something fuzzy or unclear, something that was in the dark and brings new understanding. So light means truth. And one reason we think John is saying that here is that if you look at the next verse, verse 6, he says, if we say we have fellowship with God, with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So you see what he's doing here. Darkness is equal to lies. So light is equal to truth. Light is the place where the truth is seen and known. Darkness is a place where it's hidden. So light equals truth. Darkness equals lies. Closely related, second thing that comes out in this letter and a lot of throughout the Bible and a lot of places where light is used is purity. And you can see they're really closely connected. There's, there's, there's honesty in the light. There's nothing to hide in the light. There is truth in the light. And that means it's it, it is what it is. You see what you see. Everything that's true about God is available for you to see in the light. And obviously, there's more to God than any of us will ever understand. He's not saying that everything to be known in theory is known by God. What he's saying is that God has nothing to hide. He has no hidden agendas. There's no small print, as one person put it. There's nothing that God needs to keep you from knowing so that he can get what he wants from you. He doesn't manipulate he has no mixed motives. He's never pulled in a selfish direct, and he's, he's never tempted to use others. With God, what you see is what you get. Absolute purity, goodness unblemished and beautiful. Can you see why this is good news? Why this word of life is what Jesus came to deliver? This is exactly the kind of thing you would need to know if you're considering a relationship with him. You would need to know who you're dealing with. You would need to know why it's good to have him as your friend. You would need to know what you can expect from him in a friendship. And what you need to know, the reason God, or God tells you through John that he is light, is that you won't ever hear him say one thing and do another. You won't ever know him as self-serving. You won't ever know him to do whatever he wants, no matter who gets hurt along the way. This is a God. This is a friend who doesn't need darkness for cover. He has nothing to hide. God is light. But notice that John gives us a negative side to this positive truth about God, part of what it means for him to be light. Part of what it means for him to tell the truth always and without blemish is that he has no place at all for darkness. In him is no darkness at all. No place, no peace with the realm of the self-centered, with the realm of shameful motives and actions. See, for God to be who he is in all of his beautiful light, he gives no quarter to darkness. It's a banishment for him as absolute as his commitment to light. He will make no peace. There will be no agreements to disagree or coexist. His opposition, friends, what it means that there is in him there is no darkness at all. It means this, his opposition to what is false, to what is shameful, to what is self-centered and harmful, his opposition to it is 
absolute. And we'll take no prisoners. That's why sin is so serious. If we want friendship with God, sin is life and death, all or nothing, serious. Because if God makes no peace with darkness, then his friends won't either. And that brings us to the main burden here of these verses. So it starts with the truth about God. Now John wants to apply this thing about God that's true to what it looks like for us to be sinful and still want friendship with him. The next verses are about how you can be God's friend even though God is light or what it looks like to be God's friend because he's light and in him there's no darkness at all. These next verses, in these next verses, it looks like what John is doing is taking claims made by these other teachers who came in behind him. You'll see him say, if we say this, and then he'll respond to it. And he does it again. He does it three times. If we say this, and then respond to it. And finally, if we say this, and then he responds to it. He's taken their claims about sin that he thinks are dangerously and even, even in a deadly way off the mark. He's taking their claims and he's going to respond to them one by one in this section. I want to show you three, from, from what John says here, I want to show you three different ways to respond to sin. Two of them that come as naturally to us as breathing, but only one of them which leads to friendship with the God who is light. What we want to see in this section, looking at these three different ways to respond to sin, is that there's, there's really only one way you can respond and be friends with him. I want you to see why confession of sin is so essential. Let's look at the three ways. First, here's the first way you could respond to sin. If God is light and in him is no darkness at all, here's one way you could respond and it's a dead end for you. Just know that up front. Verse six, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So one way we could respond to sin is to walk in darkness. I think what John means by that is to embrace it, to enjoy it to not even try fighting it, to willingly accept it. He doesn't really tell us exactly what it is to walk in darkness here, other than that it's the opposite of light and truth. But in in the Gospel of John, in chapter 3, Jesus talks about walking in darkness and I think gives us a better uh, insight into what John means here in his letter. In John chapter 3, Jesus talked about the fact that he, the light, has come into the world, but he says that some people love the darkness rather than the light. They see the light coming, but they run from it. And Jesus says, the reason that they love the darkness is because their deeds are evil. That's what he says. So there's, there's something about the way that they're living that is more important to them than Jesus. They need the darkness. They love it even. They desire it because it gives them the cover that they need to continue doing this thing that they enjoy. So think of walking in the darkness as a sort of willful embrace of sin. Something that God has said not to do, something that God has warned would be harmful for you, but that for whatever reason, one reason or another, seems more pleasant, more desirable than what Christ has called you to. To walk in the darkness is to embrace sin, to love it and desire it and foster it and try to keep it going. It doesn't mean that, that whatever the sin is that you, you keep going, that you foster and nurture in the darkness always feels good. I mean, a lot of times 
what we all, I'm sure, can, can attest to is that you do the thing that you think will be satisfying, and it isn't, and you even hate yourself for it for a moment, but then you just end up doing it again. And I think what he's talking about is that on balance, it's not that it always feels good. Sometimes you can even hate what you're doing, but on balance, you'd rather do it than not. And that's what it is to walk in darkness, to continue doing something, no matter what mixed feelings you might have about it, to continue doing it and creating an environment in your life where it's possible to continue doing it because you'd rather have a life doing this thing than have a life not doing this thing. That's embracing sin. That's one way we could respond to it. But if we want to be friends of God, we can't be more comfortable and more accepting of darkness than he is. And in him, there's no darkness at all just absolute war against it. So friends, it it doesn't matter how right something feels or how badly you want it or how hard it is for you to understand why it's a problem. To be friends with God is to accept his definition of what is good and right and beautiful and to reject what he calls darkness right along with him. Friendship with him isn't possible otherwise. That's the first way we could respond to sin, and it leads to a broken relationship with God, not to fellowship with him. We can say we have fellowship with him, but if we choose the darkness, we lie, John says. There's another way we could respond to sin. That comes out in verse 8. Another if we say moment for John. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Very similar statement comes out in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Two statements making basically the same point. We could deny that sin is a problem. Some apparently that that were teaching in this community after John had left, some of them were apparently saying either that they had never sinned, like, like their lives were perfect, or maybe that they aren't sinning anymore, they never do sin anymore, or that they weren't sinful by nature. We don't know exactly what they were saying, but they were trying to build in this buffer, this distance between sin in general and themselves. And John's writing to say, that's nothing but self-deception. You're kidding yourself. I don't know where you interact with this personally. Maybe you don't have a problem acknowledging that there is such a thing as, as sin. I think most of us recognize it in other people. Maybe the problem is that you have trouble acknowledging anything specific that you've done wrong. Some of us are really good at excusing ourselves. It, we, we, might, we might cite our own brokenness, our own limits, our own weakness. We might say, yeah, look, hey, I'm not perfect on the, on, on the large scale. But then if someone ever tries to point out something specific that we did that hurt them or some pattern of behavior that they think is not helpful for us, then we've got a hundred arguments to outweigh theirs. We're constantly pushing back on their attempt to speak in. On a case-by-case basis, maybe, We deny our sin and try to wriggle out from under whatever they've seen about us. There's another way, I think, too, that we can deny sin without recognizing. Maybe, again, not denying that anyone anywhere ever does anything wrong. I don't know anybody who would say that. But denying that sin is a problem in my life. 
I, th- I think right now this instinct that, that all of us have to preserve ourselves, to assure ourselves that we're okay, can actually be fed by what one writer in a, in a column I recently read in The Atlantic, he called the our anti-shame zeitgeist. It's a column by Joseph Burgo, breaks down uh, several common, very popular ways of talking about shame and, and notes how really from popular culture to what we're taught in our schools to main strategies for dealing with people's problems in therapy, all sorts of different angles that, that this message will come at you. But that right now, in, in American culture anyway, shame is enemy, public enemy number one. And that anything that might lead someone to shame is attacked. And I think there's a lot of good in that, actually. I think that, that m- many times what someone means by shame is this sense of worthlessness that people can live with. They can live with as, as if they themselves have no value. And, uh, and of all people, those who believe in Jesus and affirm the message of the Bible have to say, no, that's a lie. Because you're made in God's image. There is dignity. There is worth that comes with God's image that's yours, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are. So no one should live with a sense of worthlessness, if that's what we're talking about. But in in this era where shame has become public enemy number one, it spreads from from this realm where we're talking about whether or not a person has any sort of worth into uh, we, we attach the label, label of shame to anything someone might notice that's wrong, even to a sense of, of, of regret at all. To where if you, if you acknowledge, I have some regret, I wish I had not done X, Y, or Z, I wish this thing were not true of me, that, that you're probably going to be able to find someone who will tell you, don't worry about that. Don't live with shame. Let that baggage go. And, and if we let our resistance to shame as worthlessness spread into a resistance to regret over things we've done or things that are true about us, then we are taking steps down a path that John tells us leads to willful self-deception and actually keeps us from Jesus. We know from, a con- we know from our own experience, friends, that there is a connection between what we do on the outside, so to speak, and who we are on the inside. So we can't accept someone telling us, yes, you did that thing, but that's not who you are. That, 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 that sounds loving. It can even sound true because we know we're more complicated than any one thing that we did. It can even sound true. But it isn't biblical and it isn't liberating. We could respond to sin by embracing it and make ourselves enemies, not friends of God, because God is against all darkness. We could respond to sin by denying it. It's not our problem. We could cover up the darkness one way or the other and let the cancer stay put right where it is and spread throughout our lives. That's option number two for dealing with sin. But there's no friendship with God there. Or there's a third way to respond to sin. And it may not be what you'd expect. You could be expecting something like this. Three ways to respond to sin to be something like this. We can't embrace darkness, not if we want to be friends with the God who is light and in whom there's no darkness at all. So we know that. We can't can't embrace sin. 
We can't deny sin. We can't deny that it's real, that it's a problem. So option number three must be that we've got to be free from sin. Can't embrace it, can't deny it, must be free of it. If we want to be friends with a God who is light, we must, in the language of verse 7, walk in the light. Sounds like that's exactly what John is saying, doesn't it? If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie. If we walk in the light, though, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Okay, so, so maybe the key to friendship with God is just being sinless. That's what it can sound like. But that isn't what John says at all. Verse 9 is the key here. Verse 9 is a parallel to verse 7. It helps us to see what verse 7 means. Set up in exactly the same way. If we walk in the light, verse 7. Verse 9, if we confess our sins. Verse 9 fills out what verse 7 means. So if verse 7 is telling us that we should walk in the light, if we want friendship with God, verse 9 is telling us what it means to walk in the light. It doesn't mean to walk free of sin. It means to confess our sins. It means to tell the truth about sin. It means to stand with God in the light that is honest, that is clear, that won't hide what's true. And that looks like confession. And yet, <laughs> and yet, it raises questions, doesn't it? Maybe you're, maybe me hear what, God, what, what John says here, and, and you hear him say that to walk in the light is to confess our sins, and you think, yeah, but not mine, not my sins. He, he's talking about somebody else's sins. I, I've got reason to be ashamed of my past. I've got reason to be ashamed of my present. How can I avoid hiding in the dark given what I've done? How can I be vulnerable? How can I let anybody else see the truth about me? How can I be friends with the God who is light? And in whom there's no darkness at all. Where do I get the courage to confess the truth about who I am and what I've done? And why should I believe that God will accept me if I do? If those are questions you're asking, when you hear John say that the key is to confess our sins, that the one and only one way to respond to sin and still have friendship with God is to confess then I want to finish this morning by pointing you to three gifts that these verses put in front of us. Three gifts from God to you that make confession possible. You're not wrong to wonder about why it's, why it's possible, if it's even possible for someone like you. But God is gracious and steadfast in his love and he never leaves us on our own with what we brought to the table. I want you to see three beautiful things, three gifts that God has given that make friendship with him in the light possible despite the sin that we can't accept or deny in ourselves. What makes confession and walking in the light an option for every single one of you? Three gifts. Gift one may surprise you. Gift number one comes out in verse seven. And it's fellowship with other people. Uh, so verse 7 says, if we walk in the light, in other words, as verse 9 has shown us, if we confess our sins, if we live with confession and constant honesty about who we are and what we've done, rather than trying to hide or foster 
sin. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I think maybe you expect him to say we have fellowship with God. I don't know what you might expect him to say, but, but, but the thought that walking in the light, that being honest about sin leads to friendship with other people, I think is unexpected. What he's saying is that the, the core part of our fellowship with each other, our friendship with each other, is that we're honest about sin. And what he's pointing to is something that the whole Bible t- tells us about Christian friendship. That is, that it's purpose-driven. It's not casual, and it isn't just for fun, and it isn't really about self-fulfillment or just a happier life. It's, it, it, it hopefully leads to a happier life. It should. It's meant to. But it's purpose-driven. It has a very specific role to play in the life of a believer. Our friendships are built around our shared honesty about who we are and what we've done. Our, our friendships are about sinners helping sinners depend on God's grace. So confession of sin is a core part of how and why our friendships work in the church. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? You may be thinking that, that your desire for fellowship is precisely why you can't come into the light. Like, I, I need friends, and no, there, there is no friend under heaven that will stay with me if they knew Sometimes our desire for fellowship is precisely what keeps us in the darkness, in other words. But John is saying just the opposite. He's saying, confess your sins because you can have fellowship with others in the light. So see in this verse, in other words, see in this verse a challenge to the lie that may have kept you in darkness until this moment, until this, moment this morning. You might be believing that people can't handle you. What with all their perfect lives, what with all their, let's say, moral or ethical equivalent of a first world problem. You may be thinking that there's nobody here who can handle it or understand it or relate to it, or stay with you given what you've done that no one else has done what you have, or, or whatever else. That might be what you're thinking. If, if so, you're in good company. That is a lie that the evil one has been using to great effect for a long time. But I want you to see that here in 1 John chapter 1, you are hearing that lie confronted head on. And he is telling you, What I can tell you from my own experience and what many others sitting in the room right now could tell you from theirs, if you confess your sins, we have fellowship with one another. Not despite it, but because of it, because of how badly we need one another. What binds us together is is our confession of sin alongside the promise of the Bible that God is for us if we look to Christ. What binds us together in our friendships is, is our need, our perpetual and unending and moment-by-moment moment need for God's forgiveness. So that means, friends, that the only thing that matters for you to have this fellowship with other people in this church is that you want to be in the light, not that you deserve to be in the light, not that you'll, be, that you'll come off sparkly and clear in the light, but that you honestly do want change that you want honesty and truth for your life, that you want to work together towards something different, that you don't want fellowship with darkness anymore. 
It does mean that you can't stand by anymore, can't hang out and be cool with going in and out of darkness as if there's no death in that way of life. If you do want fellowship in the church, you need to know that you're signing up your friends to fight what you have heretofore loved in the darkness. But if you want the light, we want to be with you there together. So give us the chance. Gift number one to make confession possible is God's gift to you of a local church. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Gift number two comes immediately after gift number one. This is in verse seven. If we walk in the light, which we know from verse nine means if we confess our sins, don't try to hide them anymore. Not only do we have fellowship with one another, we have the blood of Jesus, God's son. It cleanses us from every sin. Jesus didn't come to give us a better example to follow. This is why it's so important, friends, that we understand why Jesus had to die. If you think of Jesus as someone who came to give you an example to follow or to teach you about things that you didn't know, that might be the difference between you living a a life that that uh, that, that was full of sadness and sorrow and mistakes and foolishness and a life that's full and free and happy and successful. If that's who Jesus is, a kind of guru or moral example to lead you to a better way, then no matter how helpful he is, he leaves you stained hopelessly as you are already. In fact, his example and all of its shining brilliance just makes your shame heavier when you realize how far short you've fallen. The closer you look at his beauty, the more you'll be ashamed of your brokenness. But that isn't why Jesus came. I mean, it is, but it isn't. Yes, he's an incredible example. We're told to follow him. Yeah, he teaches us things that we couldn't have known apart from his clear and powerful words about what's true and right. But Jesus came fundamentally to shed his blood. He came to give his own precious life, infinitely valuable for yours. All through the Bible, for sinners to be made right with God, it takes blood. Blood symbolizes the whole life. Because, friends, what we owe God as our maker is everything. There isn't one part of us, not one cell in this body that he doesn't own. Not one breath that doesn't come as a gift from his hand. He, he owns and deserves everything. And so sacrifice for sinners who choose to withhold their lives as their own is always blood, whole lives given. It's God's way of symbolizing how serious sin is. But as, as Matt read to us earlier in our service from Hebrews chapter 9, there was, there was a major problem with all the blood that was shed through all the years of Israel's history before Jesus came and lived. None of it was good enough. None of it came close to being as valuable as the lives we had withheld from God by our sin. Didn't come close. That's why sacrifices had to be made over and over and over every year. Those sacrifices making two points, really. One, sin is serious enough to demand blood and and God has made a way to account for it. And two, nothing you've seen so far is enough yet. Not enough blood, not valuable enough until Christ. 
until Christ comes and sheds his blood, a blood infinitely more valuable than that of a bull or a goat or even one of us. What John is trying to point us to here when he says that if we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us, is that if we come into the light where the truth about us is known, where people see who we've been and who we haven't been, we don't stand there alone. We don't stand there naked with no covering. We stand there wrapped up in Jesus' righteousness. We stand there, stand there cleansed by his blood. We stand there with him, even in him, so that all of his beauty becomes ours. So what makes it possible for you to confess your sins and to come into the light? Well, this promise that you won't stand there on your own. You stand in Christ or not at all. And that leads us directly to gift number three. Gift number one is fellowship with one another. If we walk in the light, confessing our sins, we have each other. And if we walk in the light, confessing our sins, we know that the blood of Jesus covers us. And gift number three goes hand in hand with gift number two, and it's all about the character of God. The character of the God who promises to forgive everybody who confesses their sin and trusts in Jesus. This comes out in verse nine. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Faithful and just. Faithful. Because this is a God who is light. There is no small print. There are no hidden fees. There is no gotcha moment waiting for you if you come into the light with him. What he says, he does always perfectly. And he says he'll forgive anyone who trusts in Christ. He is faithful. You can depend on him. He is light. But not only is he faithful to forgive, just like he said he would, John says he's also just to forgive. And that ups the ante even further. That means that he's right to forgive, even that he's bound to forgive, because he's a God who is light. He always does what's right. He always does what's just. He never cuts corners. And, and John is telling us that, that if we come into the light, if we confess our sins, that God is just to forgive us, bound by the fact that he's light to forgive us. What does that mean? It means this. For God to forgive you, he doesn't have to bend any rules. He doesn't have to work off the book. He doesn't have to do anything under the table. His offer of forgiveness is not one of those too-good-to-be-true, get-rich schemes. There's no pyramid anywhere close to this. Everything is done in the open. Everything done with truth and honesty and absolute purity. And what that means is that God could only forgive you he could only forgive me in a way that tells the truth about our sin and its seriousness. The only way he could forgive us is to tell the truth about what our sin means. He doesn't color code it. He does not shade the truth at all. He doesn't cut any corners. And that's why the blood of Jesus matters so much. Our sin is serious enough to demand the lifeblood of God's only begotten son. He cuts no corner to make you pure and clean and ready for life in the light. He gives you no reason to pretend 
Because all those sins, John says, everyone from all sin, all of those sins can be cleansed by the power of his blood. So much so that it would be unjust of God not to forgive you. Think about it like this. I, uh, this, this last week, I have, have initiated that annual conversation with my tax professional to make sure that all my documents are accounted for, that all the filings you're going to go through on time, maybe you're doing the same. It's got me thinking about how, it's got me thinking about something I think may help you to connect with why it's so beautiful and powerful that John says, God is just to forgive you. Imagine you filed your taxes wrongly, that years later you recognize the problem, what you've done. The IRS doesn't recognize it. Maybe you're too small of a fish in their ocean, but you recognize it. You ask your tax professional about it, and they say, yep, that was wrong. You're going to owe a lot, thousands of dollars you owe. But you know what? The IRS is understaffed. Have you noticed that? been talking about it in the news what are the chances they're ever going to audit you i mean here's your annual income it's not that high don't worry about it now if you're thinking straight you're not going to be good with that even if it's an official from the irs telling you that wink wink don't worry about it because you're going to have to wonder even if i take them up on this quote unquote forgiveness Did did that person have the right to tell me not to worry about it? Do they have to hide this from their boss? Are they going to have to keep this in the dark for this to keep going? Is somebody going to figure this out someday and come looking for me? You're going to have to live life looking over your shoulder. You're going to have to stay in the dark where one lie often just breeds another one. That might be mercy from the official who told you not to worry about it. Even motivated by a kind of love from them. But it isn't just. But what if the official who's helped you to see this problem, who's confirmed the scale of what you now owe, what if that official sees the truth, acknowledges the seriousness of what you're facing, doesn't hide from any of it, and says, we've got to do what's right here. We have to do this in the light. But then says to you, okay, I'll refile for you according to the rules. Yes, that's going to mean that you owe thousands of dollars, an amount you can't afford. I'll pay it. So come into the light. It's right and true and just that you live out here. I've paid for it. You've got nothing to hide. You belong here in the light with me. So don't be afraid. Well, in that case, friends, assuming you're willing to swallow your pride, assuming you're willing to admit that you made a mistake, to admit that you can't go on without help, Assuming you're willing to lose face, not save it, then you can be free. You can be forgiven. You can be cleansed and embraced by the God who lives in the light and offers his friendship to you. Father, we pray that you would break down in our hearts right now
any barriers to accepting a salvation that we can't pay for and aren't asked to. I pray that you would give us the humility, the poverty of spirit to accept the gift that Jesus is. To be honest about our sin, to bring them into the light and to watch with joy as you cleanse us. I pray for friends who may be sitting out there this morning who are hiding in darkness until this moment, that you would give them the confidence they need to be honest and open, that you would help them to trust that we are for them and with them if they do, and that you'd help them to believe that Jesus has left not one sin unpaid for for all who trust in him. Help us, we pray, to walk in the light with you. In Jesus' name, amen.